ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. I would say the one narrative that just about every investor has heard at this point is that traditional 60-40 uh, investing, the traditional 60-40 portfolio is dead, and probably more specifically that the 40 portion is dead, that bonds are dead because they're hardly yielding anything right now. And when you add in inflation, uh, many bonds actually have negative real yields. So I think the feeling is, well, what happens if inflation continues spiking? And what happens if interest rates rise? Bonds just don't look like a great place to be right now. However, if you've heard Tom on the podcast before, you know what we like to do with these types of narratives is look at them through the lens of ETF trends and ETF database website traffic and data and analytics and really get a window into what investors are actually doing when they visit those sites, which then might inform us on what they're doing in their portfolios. And that's exactly what we're going to do this week around this entire story of the death of the 60-40 portfolio and also just the challenge of fixed income investing right now. So Tom and I will start there. I'll then be joined by a brand new ETF entrant, like brand new as in today. The ETF literally launched like 30 minutes ago. Colin Roche, founder and chief investment officer of Discipline Funds, is going to spotlight the Discipline Fund ETF and also talk about why he decided to enter the ETF space. Now, I've had an opportunity to uh, take a look at this ETF. I think this is a story you're going to want to hear because I would generally place this ETF into the asset allocation fund category, which historically has been pretty difficult for ETF issuers to find success in. But I would tell you with the way Colin's approaching this ETF and given how he has an established client base and he toss in his social media presence, I really like his chances here. So look forward to that conversation. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors, 
who they've just continued quietly building a really nice ETF business. Uh, they're approaching $9 billion in total assets. And I would say they have one of the more unique ETF lineups out there. So we'll discuss some of their ETFs and how they're approaching the ETF space. And then also spend a few minutes talking financial markets, stocks, bonds, uh, China, wherever Sean wants to go. He's an excellent all-around market resource. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Nate, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. For our conversation. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we are going to discuss this narrative that the traditional 60-40 portfolio is dead and also just this overall challenge of fixed income investing right now. And as listeners are hopefully becoming familiar with whenever you join me, we're going to do this by looking through the unique lens ETF trends and ETF database offers, right? You actually have real data and analytics on this. Um, I thought to start why don't you set the table a bit for us here? We'll drill into some specifics in a moment, but give us the broader picture in terms of what you're seeing on this topic. Yeah, absolutely, Nate. So as you mentioned in, in the preamble, one of the biggest challenges that we're hearing and also seeing through advisor traffic and where they're engaged in is the challenge of the 40% component, the traditional 60-40 split where, where a portfolio is split 60% equities, 40% uh, bonds and fixed income. And and in this rate environment, through a number of different things, and, and this is kind of interesting, Nate, because we're going to go not only in the uh, implicit data, you know, data that uh, advisors are, are engaging in across the ETF trends and ETF database platform, but we're also going to look at some of the polling and surveying data that we do. We're out there in field surveying advisors, I would, I would uh, say as much as anyone. And, and so, we're going to look at some of that polling data, what we can tease out of that, some of the interesting takeaways from the challenges that are faced through how advisors are navigating this, this you know, kind of unique environment and what that means, and then also share some data as it relates to year over year, how advisors, when we drill into the relative attention within the, the opportunities to solve for um, the challenge that the 40% of the portfolio is, is providing, uh, how has that changed this year versus last year, and get a sense of the directional um, element of, of where the advisor's attention is, is, being, um, is, is being spent. So that, that's kind of the, setting the stage for it. So I'd love to share some of that polling data, and then we can talk about what, what some of that means. Yeah, no, please jump right in. Yeah, so recently we asked a, a group of advisors, and I will say, you know, this is a, a group of advisors that is on the ETF Trends and ETF database platform, and, and hundreds of advisors answered, answered this polling question. And the question was, where are you moving from, a 60, from your traditional 60-40 portfolio allocation? And so I'll just, re I'll just read the results real quick, Nate, and then we can talk about what this means. So uh, moving to 60-40, 20%, moving to... 70, 30, 48%, moving to 80, 20, 
21% and moving to 90-10-11%. So just to, to, to summarize that and cluster it a little bit, 79% of the advisors who answered that question are moving away from 60-40 and towards one of 70-30, 80-20, or 90-10. And, and, and I think that's fascinating as we think about, um, you know, sort of this generational challenge that we have as it relates to wealth management. What do you think, Nate? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a clear shift towards more aggressiveness here, more towards stocks, P- pretty crystal clear. Yeah, exactly. So it's that Tina market. So there is no alternative. So everyone's getting pushed um, more towards equities and away from their bonds. And then the question that it gets begged is is how are you doing that because traditionally you know that 40 percent was the ballast to your portfolio but it was also the income side of the portfolio or the stable income side so we followed up and we asked those same group of advisors how are you primarily finding income for your clients and so interesting split here so uh 12.2 percent bonds 12.4 percent covered calls and almost 75% dividends. So again, this trend towards, you know, what is the solution to this problem? Equities, and specifically dividend-paying equities. Yeah, and again, I would say makes perfect sense in that if you're going to shift away from bonds and get more aggressive into equities, and in the search here is for income, of course, the first place you're probably going to look is dividend-paying uh, stocks. And, and then, you know, certainly cover call strategies and some of the other income producers make sense. But that one doesn't surprise me either, 75% into, uh, into dividends. So here's, here's the third one, Nate, and I'm, I'm curious, really curious to see how, how we dissect this one. So then we asked the same group of advisors, given today's market, what is the key area you're planning to change in your client's portfolio? Answer number one, de-risking portfolios, 41%. Finding income, 30%. Positioning for growth, 14%. Stay as is, 14%. So... 41% of advisors, while simultaneously saying are moving more into equities, specifically overweight on a dividend equity strategy, are at the same time talking about how their number one focus is on de-risking portfolios. And, and I find this fascinating because I, I think, Nate, and, and you know, I love your commentary here, but doesn't this challenge the traditional way in which we, we thought about the risk-return spectrum going towards equities while de-risking? Yeah, I mean... How, t- how do we unpack that? This one is the one that just jumps right off the page to me. That, what would you say, 41% of advisors are planning on de-risking portfolios, another 30% seeking more income. That does seem contradictory to me compared to the other polls where you said advisors are moving more towards stocks, uh, dividend-paying stocks in particular. I mean, th- think about that. De-risking by moving into stocks. I, I think that paints the investor dilemma in a nutshell right now. Now, I'm guessing you know some of the people on that polling data probably view uh, this as de-risking away from bonds, right? So I, I guess depending upon what type of bonds they're in. But uh, yeah, I mean, that seems contradictory to, to me. And again, I think paints the dilemma. Yeah, so Nate, as a practitioner, and, and you know, you, you're, you're an advisor yourself. And so as you think about this, um, where do you fit on this spectrum, and what's the what's your mentality as it relates to client <laughs> communication, um, and, and and where where are you? That's a loaded question. Um, look, I, I guess first of all, I get nervous anytime I hear narratives like sixty forty is dead, 
And I realize markets change, uh, that things can certainly be different moving forward. I just think it's dangerous to completely write off something that has worked pretty well historically. So I'll start with that point. But uh, what I'll tell you is the way that we view bonds in a portfolio is as a ballast. And quite frankly, we've tended to stay pretty conservative. So shorter duration, higher quality investment grade. And to be honest, that's cost us some returns. But I can tell you, we also sleep very well at night. And I always like to use the example of uh, last March during the COVID crash. So our portfolios did exactly what we expected them to do. We, we had no surprises. We didn't get client questions and phone calls about what was going on in our portfolios because we haven't chased yield. Now, I get the other side of that, right, that clients expect returns. And there are certainly some very interesting ETF options out there in particular uh, where you can scoop up some additional uh, yield and, and income. But you have to understand the risk you're taking. And I know it's, it's very cliche, but the bottom line is there's no free lunch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Nate, you said the, a key term there, no surprises. So that speaks to the expectation setting and a, and a key role, I think, of the advisor community is – is if you've um, done the work, both from an educational standpoint and a communication standpoint, and have had the conversations with your client base so that they understand what to expect in certain scenarios um, as you go through times of you know, challenge uh, in the markets, coming out of them, you can reflect back on and point to the fact that you, you put that work in. That's 100% that right. No, yeah, no, I was just going to say, man, like I go back to that, that COVID crash, and I can tell you there were other advisors we saw who were loaded up on high-yield bonds, for example. So they were telling the client, hey, look, you have, let's just say, a 60-40 portfolio, but perhaps 10% of that 40 allocation was in high-yield bonds. Well, guess what? Those high-yield bonds acted like equities, during that COVID drawdown. And if they did not set that expectation with the incline in terms of how high yield bonds would react in that environment, guess what? That was a surprise to the incline and that can uh, cause some behavioral challenges in a portfolio. So I completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, it comes down to setting the right expectations and an education you know, on the back end. And, and the bottom line is clients have to know how these different types of investments are going to react in different uh, market environments. And even then, there are no guarantees, right? You, you, you can't say, okay, here's how something's uh, reacted historically and guarantee that's how it's going to react moving forward. But it is a good proxy for, for how it will likely uh, behave. But I'll just go back, you know, from our standpoint, we feel pretty, pretty confident around having shorter duration, higher quality bonds. We know how those are going to react. Yeah, well, and maybe that's it's more of a qualitative takeaway from this data, which is, is kind of uh, you know interesting in and to, to itself. So, if nothing else, the advisors listening to this show and and you know folks that you're talking to and folks that we're educating on a daily basis across the ETF trends and database platform is that client expectation setting in this environment is probably paramount to doing a really good job because there is this. Um, interest and, and understanding and broad understanding of these challenging times. So you, you can imagine a lot of the client base, especially ones who skew a little bit more to the risk side of the spectrum, are challenging their advisor to get out there on the um, you know, equity side and, and some of these more uh, new and innovative ways of deriving income, but ultimately, to your point, have somewhat of an equity-like risk return profile. So if nothing else, and, and I don't mean to 
you know, always fall back on this, but the educational process, both to the advisor and then the advisor following through and, and to their client base, I think is just critical right now. And this data would suggest that it's, it's, it's certainly that. Well, and I think especially in the ETF space, because we always talk week in and week out about these amazing innovative products coming to market, many of which currently are, are helping to solve some of these challenges around income and, and risk in a portfolio. Now, you know, as I mentioned, for, for, for me personally and my firm, we've stayed pretty boring for better or worse. And actually, it's a, it's a little painful for me because I get to visit with the smartest people in the ETF space every week on this podcast, right? People developing these these wonderful products. And then, you know, we're using a lot of plain Jane, you know, boring stuff in the portfolio. Uh, but I think the point is, is that there are uh, just wonderful products coming to market. The education has to be key. Um, Tom, let me ask you this, just sort of re- resetting. Obviously, this narrative of the 60-40 portfolio dying, I-, I think with some of the data you pointed to earlier, it does have some legs, right? Clearly, advisors are concerned around this. Um, I- I'm curious, I mean, if, if you go another layer deeper, you, you mentioned some other data that, that you have, what does that look like? I mean, are you able to tell what advisors are doing, where they're turning, if bonds are dead or dying? Yeah, no, great question, Nate. So we certainly do. So one of the other ways that we can slice and dice, uh, you know, our advisor engagement data is to look at a specific group of themes. So I, so I, I pulled out three. So preferred dividends, and then inflation protected bonds or tips. And so what we can do is we can look at, and I compared um, August 2020 versus August 2021. And if an advisor had 100 seconds of attention, how was that allocated amongst those three topics across the ETF trends and database platform? And so this is going to be supportive of what we were talking about, Nate, but it's, it's another you know, real-world data point about where advisors are focused, is that for, for August 2020, it was about an equal split, and I, I'm, I'm getting rid of some of the, you know, little bit of, um, you know, rounding error here, but about 33 of your 100 seconds was equally divided between attention on preferreds, dividends, and tips. In August 21, the dividend focus was up about 40%, and obviously that has to sum to zero, so that is that sa- the sacrifice of attention on preferreds and tips. So both preferreds and tips were down from an attention perspective, about 20, 20%, and dividend focus was up 40%. So the way that that works out is that that 100 seconds of advisor attention in August 21, 27 seconds would be on preferreds, 46 seconds would be on dividends, and 27 seconds would be on tips. So clearly this shift that we're seeing from a narrative standpoint, from a polling standpoint, and then an, an implicit data standpoint where advisors are engaging that is all lining up. And, and so I think that that's why this, this topic is so important, because as we talk about, um, clearly it's a challenge. Clearly there's a lot of um, pressure and stress from, from an advisor's perspective to be educating themselves and then passing on that education and then also doing that follow through on the expectation setting. Whatever the preferred methodology is of the portfolio construction, are they communicating that and reinforcing what that is on a go-forward basis? And if there are tweaks being made, are you resetting those expectations? So certainly advisors are doing the research. They're figuring out, hey, if I do deconstruct that 40 and I do take a you know, 10% slice of that is, is related to dividend-paying ETFs, am I communicating that? And am I able to communicate um, what those ETFs are doing 
and in certain scenarios, am I able to communicate how they will perform under market stress or, or you know, if the market runs more? I think that's all extremely well said, and I don't want to belabor the point. I'll just add that everything is about trade-offs right now. You can invest in a covered call strategy and, and scoop up some income, but obviously you're giving up upside, and the downside risk there is not the same with bonds. Dividend-paying stocks, uh, those aren't the same as bonds. There are unique risks involved with different asset classes and strategies. And when I hear the term uh, fixed income replacement, I do get a little weary uh, just because, again, the, these quote-unquote fixed income replaces, uh, replacements are going to have different risk-return profiles than uh, traditional bonds. So I, I just think that's important to, to point out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Nate, you, uh, I, I like your um, steady hand at the wheel approach because, you know, some of the most um, expensive words in finance are this time is different. And so that, that's a real challenge to understand what is different and if it is different, am I going to act differently? And so maybe to go one, one layer deeper, and I'm not going to go into, um, you, you mentioned the innovation within, you know, just the ETF community writ large. And that's certainly also true within the dividend ETF space. And so there's, there is excellent choice as, as advisors and investors drill into their options within dividend ETFs. And so I just picked out three where we've seen, you know, a significant uptick, you know, at least mid double digits increase in advisor engagement year over year. And I was just going to, you know, drip in three tickers, Nate, and then let everyone, um, you know, come and do research uh, wherever their favorite spot to do research is. If that's ETF Trends, the database, great. But if not, um, understanding that as you drill into either dividends or covered calls or preferreds or inflation protected bonds or, or other areas of fixed income, the choice that the advisor and the investor has right now has never been better. And so, um, you know, continuing to do education and understand what they're buying and opening up the hood. Those are, uh, you know, stalwart qualities of, of good diligence. But if I could, I'll run through three, um, like I said, that have had significant increase in advisor engagement year over year. One is the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SCHD. You know, big fund, almost $30 billion. Uh, and like I said, I won't go into all the, the, the specs of it, but that's, that's seen significant year over year increase. First Trust Rising Dividend Achievers ETF, ticker RD. DY, uh, a little bit smaller of a fund, you know, bumping up against $6 billion, but, uh, you know, also performed pretty well. And then finally, a, a bit of a smaller fund, the Victory Shares US EQ Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, which is a dividend focused ETF. So, so you know, applying a di different methodology to the index construction, um, bringing in the concept of weighting by volatility. And just speaking to the fact that as you unpack this area, just like the entire ETF ecosystem, the choice and the innovation just continues to grow and expand. And, and as advisors look at these as options for their portfolio, whether it be within that traditional 60% or uh, to take some of that 40%, dividend ETFs are, are a pretty um, uh, robust area to certainly research. Tom, just a couple of minutes left. I'm curious... Any thoughts or data surrounding alternatives? So alternative ETFs or alternative asset classes, I feel like those get a lot of run as potential, quote unquote, fixed income replacements. Any, any quick thoughts or insight there? Yeah, so we certainly have seen advisor interest uh, ticking up there, Nate. Um, over, you know, 
certainly a year over year, but also quarter over quarter. So we're seeing um, even the early data from the third quarter over the second quarter, the, the second derivative, as they say, the growth is accelerating in interest within alternatives. And I think that that's something that uh, is going to continue. And, and there's probably, you know, a confluence of themes there. One is, you know, challenges within, you know, the income sphere but also just the proliferation and accessibility of some of these alternative asset classes, especially when we can get into some of those assets that may be uncorrelated. And so, you know, to, to put one out there and, and, you know, near and dear to your heart is, is crypto. <laughs> and so we're, we continue, we continue to see advisor interest um, increase there. Uh, the educational element has never been more important. And I think that the, the innovation that's happening within that space, especially as it relates to folks building innovative ETF products, housing a number of different ways to access the crypto markets and, and blockchain more broadly, uh, just continues to grow. And so that's something that we certainly see um, an acceleration of interest from the advisor community. Well, Tom, great stuff uh, as always. Appreciate the time this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Colin Roche, founder and chief investment officer of Discipline Funds, who just today, they launched the Discipline Fund ETF, ticker symbol DSCF. This is a unique asset allocation ETF, as we'll get into. And some of you may already know Colin from his blog at pragcap.com. He's also written a book titled Pragmatic Capitalism. I'll add that he's an excellent follow on uh, Twitter if you're out on that platform. And he's now on the line with me from San Diego, California. Colin, congratulations on the ETF, and thank you for joining me. Nate, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, how are you feeling today? It's got to be pretty exciting launching an ETF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, the whole thing's a weird process. So we launched on NYSE just uh, this morning. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a strange process going through all the the fundraising process for an ETF is strange for people who don't know because you you basically start the the whole process you initiate everything and you build up this fund and you don't actually know if any money is going to go into the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, what I thought we would do is let's first go through the ETF itself and then I do want to take a step back and talk about why you launched this ETF and and how that entire process went. I know you worked with Wes Gray and the uh, Alpha Architect team mm -hmm. on this, but. First, explain the ETF. What is the overall approach here? Yeah, so it's it's pretty clean. I mean, it's a uh, basically it's a fund of funds. So we'll typically hold six to eight underlying low cost, market cap weighted, very diversified ETFs, 
And the goal is to get basically global equity exposure with domestic high-quality bond exposure. And as the fund kind of alludes to, the goal of the fund is to instill a certain degree of discipline inside of the way that the fund rebalances. And so the way I would uh, describe most index funds is that most index funds are typically some sort of fixed balanced fund that, for instance, a 60-40 is always trying to be a 60-40. So in a typical year, a 60-40 might grow into a 70-30, and it'll always rebalance back to a 60-40. What the discipline fund is designed to do is rebalance a bit more dynamically. So, for instance, if uh, the the weightings, the relative weightings are based on an underlying macro algorithm that I wrote over the years, and it's designed basically to try to quantify the amount of equity versus bond risk in the underlying. And so, well, 60-40 might rebalance back to 60-40 during a big bull market. The discipline fund in certain years, it might rebalance to, say, 50-50. And so what we're trying to do is better control for the equity market risk than something like a standard sort of static, uh, what I would call a pro-cyclical index fund does, like a 60-40. Can you talk a bit more about the macro algorithms that, that are running in the background? Like, how exactly are you evaluating market and economic risks? Yeah, so it's basically a function of a broad set of both financial financial and market ma- sort of mac- macroeconomic data, um, big, broad, pro-cyclical data. So what we're basically trying to do is you're trying to take big pro-cyclical trends, and you're essentially trying to measure really how strong is the economy. That's really the thing that we're trying to hedge against to some degree, is you're trying to to basically quantify how strong is the economy at certain times? Because the way that I basically view the economy is that the economy gets very levered on basically employment. And firms basically will hire a lot of people when the economy gets very stretched. And then when the economy, for whatever reason, starts to weaken, they will basically delever employment. And so the economy goes through these big ebbs and flows. You know, we call them recessions and expansions, but it goes through these big long-term expansions and contractions over time. And the fund is designed to try to hedge against the the potential that the your financial portfolio will undergo some duress during a period where we go through one of these deleverings. And so the underlying are not only valuation metrics and things like that, but also big macroeconomic data like unemployment and um, the credit spreads and things like that that sort of measure uh, the the stress or the strength in the economy across time. So if I were to recap that in a nutshell, I mean, it sounds like this ETF will effectively get less aggressive when there is more perceived economic risks, higher stock valuations, those sorts of things. And then the inverse of that, of course, get more aggressive when there are lower valuations, right? Is it's there a, what, what's the, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's designed basically in a way so that typically in a long bull market, towards the end of that bull market, the fund will very likely, almost certainly underperform something like an S&P 500 fund or even a 60-40 in all likelihood. Whereas, it's designed to do the opposite during a bear market. So it'll actually, it's kind of always doing what is a little bit uncomfortable for most people, the you know who follow the big trends. It's designed to sort of implement a sort of macro buy low and sell high type of methodology, so that your your portfolio is always sort of systematically doing the thing that is a little bit uncomfortable, but is 
oftentimes in the long run the right thing to be doing. So we'll typically underperform during a big bull market, and we will do better hopefully when the the stock market contracts and we rebalance and against the predominant trend. And what is the baseline stock bond allocation? Is it 60-40, 50-50? Like what's considered the equilibrium point there? So I'm using the, a global market cap weighting. So it's that's pretty much 45-55 on average. So it's 45-55 or 50-50 stocks bonds is, is what our real benchmark is. I would expect it. I mean, to be frank, in the long run, this thing should not outperform 60-40. So if it does, that means that something is going on very, very, very right with the underlying algorithm. But on average, I would expect this fund to look a lot like a 50-50 stock bond allocation. So right now, there are six holdings. And let, let me just go through these. So there's the Vanguard 500 ETF, the iShares Core MSCI EFA ETF, iShares Core Emerging Markets ETF, Vanguard Intermediate Bond ETF, Spider Portfolio Corporate Bond ETF, and then the uh, Vanguard Long-Term Bond ETF. Again, six holdings total. How are you selecting th these holdings? Like, what does that process look like to select ETFs to get exposure to a particular asset class? So the equity piece is really plain and simple. It's basically just, it reflects a market cap weighting of the entire global stock market. So we wanted global exposure because the, so much of the research just shows that a, 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 a global holdings of stocks are beneficial. I know this has been, you know, the way wrong trade for the last 10 years or so, but that ebbs and flows. You know, there were periods in the, the early 2000s there where, the, you know, the flip side of this all happened. So we don't try to pick which place to be in the equity market. We just want to own the whole thing. On the bond side, it's much more specific. We're actually trying to control for the very high-quality safe haven. So, again, the goal with the fixed income piece is really to provide a better hedge than, for instance, a bond aggregate does versus your, your typical holdings in a bond portfolio. So we're specifically picking the high-quality corporate bonds. It's all domestic, by the way. The, the, I basically view foreign bonds as being almost a version of stocks when you need them to be like bonds. And so typically in, in big downturns, foreign stocks tend to look, or foreign bonds tend to look a lot more like equities than they do like bonds. And so specifically when you're trying to find safe havens, you really have to, I think, be domestic. You have to be very high quality. And so our focus is specifically U.S. government bonds and U.S. corporate bonds. And we, we actually will tilt the duration a little bit. So as the you know, to provide even further hedging against the equity piece so that, for instance, in an environment like right now where the algorithm is basically consistent with a little longer in the business cycle and a little more risk of financial duress, the duration on the bond piece is a little longer on average than like a bond aggregate. Now, I couldn't agree more with everything you just laid out on the bond side. I was actually discussing this earlier with ETF Trends' Tom Hendrickson, just about the risk being taken on the fixed income side of a portfolio. And I guess on that note, we were also discussing this notion of the uh, traditional 60-40 portfolio being dead and, and, and talking about where advisors can turn if that's the case. From what you've gone through, I mean, it sounds like you agree there are at least some shortcomings in the traditional 60-40 allocation, just that it's a static allocation, right? These are shortcomings your ETF is attempting to solve. Um, but but I'm curious, I mean, do you think 60-40 is actually dead? I, I, 
calling it dead is probably a little a little much. I mean, I what I would say is sixty forty is not right for everybody. And this fund, we, we started this fund specifically because I've, I mean, I've seen it with my own clients. I've seen it personally the way that a sixty forty just during certain environments it it's exposed as having certain weaknesses that I think could be fixed to some degree. And so the big one for me is obviously the fixed way that it manages the equity risk. I mean, this thing falls 30, 35% in a year like 2008. This is, that's a pretty significant decline for something that you think is a balanced risk weighted fund. And so, and then on the bond piece, all of the risks in the bond piece kind of just get exacerbated in a low interest rate environment because it just becomes so much less significant in terms of its ability to hedge your your actual equity market risk because, frankly, interest rates are just so low and the duration is so low in that thing that it just can't provide much of a buffer against the equity piece. And so this is part of why you see in periods like the 1940s to the 1980s, the bond piece is a big drag on the, on the overall portfolio, or a much bigger drag than it is in a falling interest rate environment in large part because it just can't provide the principal protection because it doesn't have the ability to to increase in, in price anymore because interest rates are just so low at that point. So I would say that the 60-40 is not dead, but it's not right for everybody. And I think there's, you know, everyone's different. Everyone, I think, needs some sort of a, a, a sort of personalized custom approach. And this one is really, this fund is really designed for people who have a certain degree of behavioral bias that they know that, during big downturns, they're likely to overreact, or during big bull markets, they're likely to get sucked in at the wrong time and sort of do a lot of the wrong things. Can you talk a little more about specific portfolio application? Like, how else do you see DSCF being used? Obviously, it's a core portfolio holding, but I guess offer some more insight into the actual portfolio application. Yeah, so this is one of the interesting things that I've found with my practice is that holding single ETFs can be problematic mainly for rebalancing purposes. And so this fund solves an essential rebalancing problem in that the way that I sort of view this, the way that this thing will probably work into a lot of people's portfolios is if you think of sort of a bucketing approach where you have a short-term holding, a medium-term holding, and a long-term holding, what typically happens is your long-term holding, meaning your equities, usually outperforms everything else. And you eventually have to rebalance that thing back. And when you do that, you run into a capital gains tax issue. And so a lot of people will find themselves late in a bull market. They want to change their profile back to what it should be. They want to rebalance back to their original allocation of, say, 50-50 or 60-40 or whatever it is. And they're hesitant to do so because they have huge capital gains in the, in the equity piece. And this fund, to a large degree, helps solve that problem because it's internally rebalancing inside of the ETF. And so we're able to rebalance the fund in a much more tax-efficient manner without having to touch all of your other stuff. So you can kind of embed DSCF into your portfolio in a way that it improves not only the, the behavioral aspects of managing the portfolio, but it helps you manage your, your capital gains taxes along the way and managing your risk profile. Obviously, you put a tremendous amount of thought into this ETF and the underlying strategy, but I'm curious, what was the catalyst or, or catalyst to, to have you actually decide to enter the Terror Dome, the ETF space? 
You know, I just got frustrated running. I, I mean, I own the underlying ETFs in my portfolio. I own them in a lot of client portfolios. And I just got frustrated with, especially at this point in the bull market, with, you know, wrestling with with clients and myself over this capital gains issue to a large degree. And the, the ETF structure is just, this is so clean. It's so simple. This thing holds 10,000 underlying stocks and bonds. I mean, it's doing a huge amount of heavy lifting for something that is just a, in a nice, neat little package. And so that was really the impetus was just my frustration with the fact that I'm, I'm sort of surprised that Vanguard didn't start something like this you know, 10 years ago, wrapping fund to funds inside of one ETF that rebalances a little bit more dynamically to help sort of control not only for capital gains, but for, you know, people's behavioral biases, which I think we could all admit we all suffer from. Okay, so it's interesting you bring up that topic, because I mentioned this at the uh, the top of the podcast, the the whole space of asset allocation ETFs, it's been challenged. Um, these haven't been the most successful area. My theory on that is I think advisors don't want a single ETF showing up on client statements. Now, you described earlier how this can be used in conjunction with a you know full portfolio, but I do think that that is a challenge for some uh, advisors. They don't want to have an asset allocation ETF. They want to unwrap it and have the yeah. whatever six to eight ETFs, even though we know it's more tax efficient <laughs> owning them in a single ETF. But do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I and I think that's rational to some degree. I mean, it's hard to to justify asset management when you only have one or a handful of positions. But to be honest, the way I think the the pl- whole planning world is going is, I think more and more planners and advisors are moving away from trying to to be asset managers as much and trying to be planners. I think that the big focus in the advisory space over the next 10 to 20 years is going to be more so on the value add of tax planning and real financial planning and the the degree to which you can just streamline the asset management stuff and sort of plug and play and put in these components that match a certain profile and just sort of streamline everything. I think the the better leveraged you are to actually offer the services that people really value, which is in the planning and tax planning and the you know the real financial advice, rather than trying to be a manager for everybody. So, yeah, I, this isn't going to be for everyone. It's not going to be for every advisor, certainly. But I think that increasingly the space will move towards this world where advisors are focusing more on doing planning and more so trying to just streamline and automate the the portfolio management processes. Colin, just a couple minutes left here. As I mentioned, I know you worked with uh, Wes Gray and the team at Alpha Architect to make this ETF happen. They now have a thriving white label ETF business. It's been remarkable to watch. But I'm just curious, how did that process go overall? Awesome. They are fantastic. Pat Cleary, Wes Gray, Jack Vogel. I mean, Wes has really put together an awesome team there. And this whole process, I mean, I called Wes at the end of last year, and we were just chit-chatting, and I said, hey, what do you think about starting an ETF together? And he just said, hell yeah, let's do it, brother. And that was, you know, that's how Wes is, though. Like, he'll when he wants to do something, he goes full bore into it, and he's just, you know, you won't find a guy with greater integrity in the whole world. And so it's a great, great product that they put together. It made the whole process just super streamlined. I mean, it takes forever because you have to deal with, uh, you know, lawyers and SEC and all this crazy stuff, but it uh, it couldn't have been more streamlined. 
Yeah, they they just have such a passion for the ETF business. I think it comes just dripping through anytime you talk to any of those individuals you mentioned. So I, I think they're going to continue having a lot of success. Okay, what I thought we would do to close here is I have some fun rapid fire questions for you. I thought this would be a good way to, to, to let listeners get to know you a little bit. And these may be a little bit oddball, but uh, I, I thought these would be topics people would enjoy. So just think quick answers here, like 30 or seconds or 30 seconds okay. or so. Okay. Um, first, I have noticed that you always have the Simpsons cartoons on your blog posts at uh, pragcap.com. Where did those come from? Like, what's the backstory on using the Simpsons? So I, I write about a lot of big, boring topics, the Fed and monetary policy, the guts of the monetary system, how things work. And it's such a dry material that The Simpsons is, in my opinion, the greatest show ever made. And it's obviously so lighthearted. I added all these cartoons and I try to be you know, somewhat funny in the blog because the material is so dry. So I'm just trying to lighten things up and get people to not be so uptight, basically, about you know, talking about money and, uh, and monetary policy and things like that. Okay, on that topic of, of monetary policy, there are all sorts of Fed conspiracy theories out there. And I know you are an expert in this space on the Federal Reserve. What do you think is the single most ridiculous myth or false narrative out there on the Fed? I mean, it's got to be these Fed balance sheet charts that we see everywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, ridiculous. People these days, people these days they'll, they'll apply the Fed balance sheet chart to almost anything. I mean, the. Granted, the the Fed, not that they're impotent in, in causing any of the evils of the world, but these days it seems like sometimes people will blame the Fed for basically anything and everything. That's a good one. I like that. Okay, uh, two more here. Is it true that you live with chickens, that, that you have a chicken coop? <laughs> yeah, well, the chickens don't live in my house. Well, actually, I can't say that. They, when, they're, when they're chicks, they actually do live in the house sometimes. Um, we've had a problem with that. So it's true. <laughs> so... Anyway, the uh, yes, we do have chickens. I grew up in in Virginia. I went to a farm school. I've always loved farm animals. Um, chickens, they they poop breakfast. I mean, what else? What other animal can you say poops breakfast for you and actually is delicious? So, all right, <laughs> why, the, why not own chickens? All right, and then the last, who would finish better in an Ironman competition? You or Wes Gray? Oh God! I mean. Anyone who knows Wes knows he's just like a, an endurance freak. So I don't even know if Wes can bike or swim, but I'm pretty certain that he would he would figure out a way during the race to beat me in both. And I know he's a great runner, and I'm a horrible runner. So Wes would probably beat me by he'd probably lap me on the on the course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Colin, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Again, congratulations on the launch of the ETF. I'm very excited for you. Certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Nate. That was Colin Roche, founder and chief investment officer of Discipline Funds. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors, who currently offers 41 ETFs, nearly $9 billion invested. That includes the popular Trend Pilot series of ETFs. Uh, these are trend following strategy ETFs, 
They also offer a data and infrastructure real estate ETF, which has had a ton of success. There's a cash cows series of ETFs. Uh, overall, it's a very interesting and diverse lineup. Uh, Sean is now on the line with me from just outside Philadelphia. Sean, always great connecting. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Nate, for having me. By the way, I'd put my money, based on the previous segment, I'd put my money on Wes Gray. <laughs> I would, too. <laughs> I think he would beat all of us. Uh, well, look, congratulations on all the uh, success, nearly $9 billion in assets. And it's funny, I was looking back, you've actually nearly doubled assets since the last time we spoke, which was only earlier last year. And certainly the financial markets have helped, but I'm curious, what have been some of the key drivers? Because it is not easy competing in the ETF Terradome. No, it's certainly not. Um, you know, when we started in June of 2015, it took us two years to get to a billion dollars. And then we sort of went on this tear where we were sort of doubling the assets every year. And then 2020 was just a you know major challenge, I think, for lots of folks, in particular for us. So we were basically flat for the year. So I would say we're back on our what we would think is our normal growth trajectory. Um, you know, we have hopes that we'll get to 10 billion by the end of this year, which would give us a double. You know, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, we're very fortunate that we have lots of distribution. Uh, opportunities, whether it's the wirehouses or registered investment advisors or independent financial planners. So we're, we're fortunate that way in that we've got you know lots of product on, on lots of different platforms. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time and money and effort on, on the distribution side, on wholesaling, so in marketing. So I think that's probably contributing. And then, you know, we continue to truly try to stay true to what we really think about ourselves, which is we try to build ETFs that are innovative, disruptive, and unique. Um, and when I say those three things, I mean, it, it, there has to be a purpose for it. It has to solve a problem. It has to be somewhat different than maybe what's already out there. Um, and then lastly, there has to be sort of a, you know, a big customer base out there that has that problem we're trying to solve. And so we, we think about things in that way. And, you know, that's what led to the trend pilot success. You know, recently here, we've had a lot of success with the cows series because, our take on traditional value is different than traditional value, and, and the performance is really speaking to that. You mentioned the real estate stuff. I mean, it's been you know very difficult to be a real estate investor, but if you're in certain pockets like data centers, cell phone towers, or in the distribution space, that's you know a growing area. So we've just sort of been you know fortunate in a number of different ways to to be able to sort of tap into these different silos that that uh, there's a market for and that there's a problem that we're trying to solve. To your point on the product development side, I agree. I, I think you've built a very unique lineup. And one thing that I really like about what Pacer has done is you've differentiated. You're not just a beta shop. And as I look at your lineup, I feel like the overall backdrop to what you offer is one of risk management where you're still offering upside, but many of your ETFs do have some sort of downside protection or at least maybe a quality tilt. Can you just talk a little bit about that, just in terms of how you've attempted to position the lineup overall? I know not every ETF you offer has that risk management aspect, but I think if I were to look at it as a whole, most of them do fall in that category to some degree. Well, I mean, you know, so that's where the trend pilot stuff really came from, and that's what we started with. So, you know, just simply utilizing the 200-day moving average to decide whether you're exposed to an equity index or in T-bills. So there there certainly is a fair amount of that. I, I think we, we sort of think about it in a couple of different ways. We do think about, you know, managing risk to the downside and how can we do that. 
but we also spend a lot of time on the other side of the table as well, which is um, how to generate alpha or excess return. You know, you, you mentioned cheap beta. We literally are across the street from Vanguard, so we know we can't be them. I mean, <laughs> they've got $5 trillion in assets and, you know, over a trillion dollars in ETFs. And, and so there's plenty of, of, of solutions there that the big guys can fight over. Um, and they're all useful products, but there is also a, a, a marketplace for the kind of stuff that we do which is either, you know, to focus on managing the downside risk, as you mentioned, or to try to produce excess return on the upside or alpha. Like, you know, we introduced a series of multi-factor strategies um, last year that have grown nicely, and I think they're approaching $300 million in AUM today. That, you know, one is just a simple low-vol, high-beta rotator, and the other one is sort of a true multi – the other two are true multi-factor strategies that we built in partnership with a group in Utah called Lunt Capital – um, so, you know, we do focus on that side of the, 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 the table as well. And then the third area where we're really focused and that I'm spending a lot of time on the product development side on now is just on income. You know, PTBD was a terrific product for us in terms of both gathering assets and for providing the right returns and, and a good solution for investors. And so we're trying to figure out in this world where there is no yield, you know, how can you provide yield to the portfolio? Um, and we just launched the, the series that gives three or four times the dividend yield on the S&P 500 without any leverage. So, you know, TRPL, triple, or QDPL. And QDPL's yield right now is, you know, it's north of 5%. So uh, we're tra- we think there's a big opportunity there that can be can sort of tapped into. Yeah, obviously we have limited time here. I guess let's expand on those last two ETFs that you mentioned. So PTDB, that's the Pacer Trend Pilot U.S. Bond ETF. Uh, this is obviously part of your Trend Pilot series, uh, but it is the only bond ETF you offer. And, to, you know, to your point, I checked yesterday, this thing has grown to over $1.25 billion in assets in less than two years. Pretty remarkable mm-hmm. success story. What exactly d- does this ETF do? And, and why do you think it's found an audience? Well, because, first of all, it's found an audience because there's no yield anywhere. So this this is a simple strategy that either is going to own high-yield bond index, an S&P high-yield bond index, or an S&P 7- to 10-year Treasury bond index. And we use a, 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 a signal we call a risk ratio to determine exposure. So the risk ratio, if you sort of pulled it apart and said, what does it really do? It measures credit spread. So when spreads are widening, you don't want to own high yield, and spreads are narrowing, you do. And so that, that signal picked up early uh, last year um, in March, very, very early in March, the changing credit spread and got out of high yield just before the major collapse because of the pandemic. And then it went back into high yield later in the year. So, so it had a very, very attractive return through a really difficult period. And it was a sort of good test, if you will, of the, the you know, what we thought with a back tested performance might look like. And so, um, I think that certainly has helped, and you know we're back in high yield today and earning you know north of a four percent coupon, but but with that risk ratio not you know no, not wedded to high yield, and, and and if things sort of do turn south south or sour or the bond market struggles, uh, I suspect that the risk ratio will pull us out of high yield and put us back in treasuries. The other ETFs you mentioned, the uh, the dividend ETF. So there's the Pacer Mataris U.S. Large Cap Dividend Multiplier 300 ETF ticker TRPL. And then there's a a 400 version of the ETF as well, QDPL. H- how do these work? They're really um, they're not very complicated, although it, you know you could think of it as complicated. 
there's basically two portfolio positions for QDPL. We'll just focus on that, which is four times the dividend of the S&P. The goal of the fund is to produce a, a dividend yield or an income that's equal to four times the current dividend of the S&P. So, you know, north of 5%, maybe 5.2% today. The two portfolio positions are 88% of the money is going to be invested in the S&P 500, so you're going to go up and down by whatever the S&P 500 goes up and down by, but on that 88%, and so you're going to get a little less upside perhaps and a little less downside. And then the remainder of the money is in treasuries, and those treasuries are used as collateral to secure dividend futures. And so there's a really robust dividend futures market out there, and we buy the first three years of the dividend futures. Um, and so that's how we sort of complete the package. We get a little bit of the dividend yield by owning 88% of the portfolio in the S&P. So we need 3.12 times more dividend than we do that by going into the dividend futures market and buying those next three years for the dividends today. And, and I think to me, like, you know, I read over the weekend about, you know, like the, the, there's more and more thought that the 60-40 model is dead because there is no yield. Uh, and people are talking about sneaking money out of fixed income into equities, and here's a way to do it, perhaps with a little less equity exposure, only 88% of the up and down, uh, but where you're getting a really attractive current dividend yield in, uh, in, in exchange for doing that. It's so funny. I uh, visited with ETF Trends' Tom Hendrickson earlier on the podcast, and our topic was around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, and that thread is now running all the way through the podcast. And, you, you know, I guess as we've gone through some of your ETFs here, to me, it's clear you are always trying to look ahead and be thoughtful on where inv investor interest may be heading and, and the trends in place. I mean, b besides this narrative around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, are there other areas uh, that have your attention, like like areas of white space in the in the ETF industry moving forward? Oh boy, that's just around a great product question. development, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, I think we'll we'll continue to to sort of try to play this theme that we're playing with PTBD and uh, perhaps in the municipal bond market. Um, you know, I think we've looked at a few di different ways there, especially if we wind up with tax reform where they raise interest rates. I think that the you know there's lots of room for for opportunity in the tax free market. Um, you know, I think we're looking at other fixed income solutions, you know, something sort of similar, but not exactly the same as like bank loans or short duration or mm -hmm. floating rate. Um, I th we think, you know, there's opportunity there to sort of edge your way in. We're looking at a couple of thematic, you know, opportunities. We've licensed some stuff from an index provider there. And then I'm trying to think, what else do we have? I mean, that's pretty much what's on the docket right now. And then, you know, you know, are there other applications for the, the cows? I mean, if you look top to bottom in value, large cap U.S., small cap international, and you look at the cows series, uh, I would argue there's probably not a better value player in the market than Pacer ETFs when you look at their Morningstar rankings. There are, we're, we're way at the top on large cap U.S., way at the top of the rankings on small cap and way at the top on international. And we think that, you know, because of the way the world is changing, because we don't use price to book, but we use free cash flow yield as a way to screen, you wind up identifying intangible assets as opposed to tangible assets that are trading at a discount to their real value. Well, and I'll add on the uh, cash cow series, there's probably not a better group of ticker symbols around. Uh, I mean, you have yeah. cows, C-O-W-Z, calf. 
a bull herd. I mean, that's a a fantastic group. I'm yeah, well, sh- calf is calf is our small cap. You know, we 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 might have just to make a bad joke. We might have gone with veal, but we thought maybe the pita people would be <laughs> upset by that, so we went with calf instead. Uh, Sean, just a couple of minutes left here. Um, let's briefly talk financial markets. So you look this year, the S and P 500 is up about 17 percent. Developed international stocks up about 10 percent. Aggregate bonds are actually negative, uh, down about a point. Obviously, this China situation has come up in the news here. It seems to be causing some consternation. Just, just very briefly and high level, what are you expecting uh, down the home stretch of 2021? Uh, I expect more volatility and more challenges. I mean, the market's priced pretty high and priced for perfection, and, and perfection is very difficult to attain. So I'm a little bit concerned about this uh, scenario in China with Evergrande. I mean, you know, we, we saw what they sort of did with COVID or what allegedly they did. Let's just say that way so I don't get in trouble. Um, and um, and this this has the potential to sort of have a rippling effect across markets. Um, and that, that sort of gets in the way of the narrative. So, you know, if you told me I could book all the gains this year and just take the rest of the year off and let the earnings and the economy and GDP kind of, kind of catch up, I'd be happy to do that. So, I think, um, you know, there's more risk to the downside today than there was beginning this year. And so starting to think about portfolios and managing some of that downside risk or lowering PEs or buying more high-quality names might be the way to go between now and the end of the year until things shake out. Well, Sean, excellent perspective as always this week. Again, congratulations on all the success. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us, Nate. Always Always a pleasure. That was Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs Distributors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank Goldman Sachs Asset Management, one of our sponsors this week. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I cannot wait for this. I will be joined by both Jan Van Eck, CEO of ETF issuer Van Eck, and Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale, You already know the topic, Bitcoin ETFs. (laughs) I am going to have a wide-ranging conversation on the entire state of Bitcoin ETFs with truly two of the best resources out there. I certainly hope you'll join me for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.